Jesus left the region of Tyre again and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee within the region of the Decapolis. They brought a man to him who was, who was deaf and had a speech impediment. They pleaded with Jesus to place his hand on him. Jesus took him aside in private, away from the crowd. He put his fingers into the man's ears, then he spit and touched the man's tongue. After he looked up to heaven, he sighed and said, Ephatha, which means be opened. Immediately, the man's ears were opened, his tongue was set free, and he began to speak plainly. Jesus gave the people strict orders to tell no one, but the more he did so, the more they kept proclaiming it. They were amazed beyond measure and said, he has done everything well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. The Gospel of our Lord. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Do you know anyone who, no matter how hard you try, you just cannot understand them? It's not that they literally speak a different language, but they might as well, because you can't really make sense of anything they're saying. And the whole way they think, how they approach other people, how they try to solve problems and issues, it just seems totally foreign to you. And you just cannot wrap your mind around at all the way that person is. It's kind of the sense you come away with when you listen to the prophet Micah today, that he is struggling somewhat, trying to get his mind around who God is, what God is like. Now Micah asks the question, who is a God like you? Which is very appropriate because Micah's name actually means who is like the Lord. So it sounds like Micah is kind of calling his own number to answer this question, but as we'll see, that's not really what's happening. The answer doesn't really come from Micah or from any other human being. But the question Micah asks, who is a God like you, is one that we need the answer to because without it, even a prophet like Micah is going to remain confused about this. The people of Judah that Micah preaches to, they're going to remain confused, and really all the people of the world are going to remain confused and lost about the answer to this question. Now the, the verses you heard earlier from Micah's book, those happen to be the very last words, the very last three verses of Micah's little prophetic book. And Micah preached to the people of Judah. That's the southern half of the kingdom of Israel, about 700 years before Jesus Christ was born. And when Micah looked around his kingdom of Judah, he saw pretty much a total spiritual mess. So those very last three verses of Micah's book are some beautiful gospel. They are wonderful good news about who God is. But I have to tell you, most of Micah's little book is not good news. Most of it is not gospel. Most of it is pretty harsh law. It's a stinging rebuke against the people of Judah and their sin. And the one sin that Micah holds up most clearly for the people of Judah is their idolatry, their worship of false gods. And Micah is telling them, he's warning them what the result of that idolatry is going to be. Judgment, death, and destruction for the people of Judah. And yet throughout the book, Micah also goes bouncing back and forth between that message and his view of the Messiah. The Lord's promise that he himself was going to come to his people and bring the Lord's kingdom with him. So that's the overall flow of Micah's book. That even as the people of Judah are falling apart at the seams spiritually, 
The Lord is going to make good on his promise of the Messiah, who's going to come and make all things right again. And at the end of it all, Micah asks, who is a God like you? And the answer to that question is both a matter of faith and a matter of fact. What the people in Judah were doing, taking materials like wood or stone, carving them or forging them into the image of what they thought God was like. And they were doing that. They were creating their own little version of God while they were ignoring what God was actually telling them about who he was through his prophets. And still today, non-Christians, and to a lesser extent, Christians too, do this. We don't do it so much in this part of the world with wood and stone anymore, but out of our own mind, out of our own ideas, we carve out for ourselves our own little version of God. What we think God is like. I was once sitting alone in a mom-and-pop diner, enjoying my breakfast and reading my Bloomington pantograph, when into the booth across the way slid an older guy and a younger guy. And you know it's not malicious, but when you're eating by yourself in a diner and two other people sit close, you just kind of naturally listen in on them a little bit. And it turns out the older guy was a pastor. And I don't know exactly what branch of Christianity he came from, but I'm guessing, based on what he said, he's like an Orthodox Presbyterian, one of the real ones, or maybe a Missouri Synod Lutheran. And the young kid, it turns out, he's a college student who had recently visited this pastor's church for a worship service, and I'm guessing the pastor then invited him out for breakfast to talk things over, right? So I start listening in, you know, the way you do, and they start talking about the St. Louis Cardinals, the preferred baseball team of the region, and you can't listen to that while you're trying to eat. It's nauseating. <laughs> so I just, I tune that out. You're not going to listen to that nonsense. But then, after a while, their conversation turned to things divine, and that's interesting to me, so I started tuning in. And this pastor, the early part of the conversation, he asked a very blunt and I think brave question to this young man. He said, so, what do you believe about God? And the young man started talking and talking, as people will do. If you ask that question and then genuinely, patiently listen to them, you'll talk and talk. And he started by saying, I think God is love. I think God loves everybody. And he was right about that. He was actually right about a lot of the things he said, and then some of the things he said were not so right. But the interesting thing was, every sentence he said started with the phrase, I think. And the pastor noticed that too. And after a few minutes, he finally interrupted and asked, what if you don't get to decide who God is? What if God is who he is, and he tells you what he is like. And that was followed by an awkward silence. Because the, the idea that there is any objective truth at all about God, the idea that each individual human does not get to carve out of their own minds what they think God is like, has pretty much faded away from our world. And people think this is a new thing. It's happening for the first time. But it was happening 2,700 years ago in the kingdom of Judah. People were carving out of wood and stone their own concept of what they wanted God to be. And all we've done now is come full circle. We are right back there again. And even Christians do this sometimes. 
Even Christians carve out for themselves who they want God to be. For example, when I am about to sin, what do I do? I create in my own mind a God who doesn't so much mind that sin. See, because then I can just go ahead and do it. Even though God tells me in his word, he very much minds that sin. He minds it so much that he sacrificed his son to pay for it. Or when I'm with friends who are not Christian, they're very nice people, very morally upright people, very kind, but not believers in Jesus. And I'm too much of a coward to ever talk about my Savior. What am I doing? I'm carving out of my own mind a God who would never send nice people to hell. A God who will take them to heaven because they're moral. Even though God tells me in his word, whoever does not believe will be condemned. Or when I'm with Christian friends who are from a, a different denomination of Christianity and they know what I do for a living and I, I can sense when this is about to happen and I just dread it. You can tell the conversation is about to turn toward religion. And I think, oh no, I'm off the clock. I get paid for this. I don't really want to have this conversation when I'm not at work. But I should be willing to have a conversation with a Baptist from God's word about why I baptize babies. I should be able to discuss with a Catholic I'm based on God's word why I don't exactly dig the Pope. But I just don't really feel like doing that. So what do I do instead? I carve out for myself a God who doesn't care about those differences. He doesn't care about the finer points of his word. He's the God who never said, my word is truth. He's the God who never said, the scripture cannot be broken. But the problem is, when people carve out their own little versions of God, they're always going to end up a really long way from the truth. You'll notice when, at, when Micah asked the question, who is a God like you, what does the answer not begin with? I think. And the answer has nothing to do with what any human being imagines or thinks about God, and that is exactly the point. Who God is. His nature, what he does, is so far beyond the imagination or the thinking of any human mind. God's thoughts, his ways are totally beyond us. In Isaiah 55, the Lord says, My thoughts are not your thoughts, and my ways are not your ways. Who is a God like you? The only right answer we're going to get to that question is the one that God himself gives to us. And what makes the capital G God different from all other gods or God, and what makes Christianity different from every other religion is the complete incomparability of who God is to what any human being could ever imagine about him. And in these verses, Micah highlights for us two things about God's nature, his work, that are totally incomparable to what any human being could ever come up with, and the first is his power. His power to win a victory that extends through all creation and through all eternity. And it's beyond what we could imagine because the power that we normally confront in our world has to do with enemy armies and legislators. See, our power it comes from wars that are waged and laws that are enacted. But God's power deals with the greatest enemy, the enemy that is at the root of it all. My sin and yours and the sin of all humanity. The four times in these verses, Micah uses three different word pictures for this problem of our sin. Twice, he uses the word rebellion. And the picture there is of an authority figure drawing a line in the sand. 
And he looks down at the people who are under his authority, and he says, this far, no farther. And the people down there look up at him in the eye and say, forget you and forget your line. We're going to go wherever we want. Who do you think you are drawing lines for us? That's rebellion. The second picture is guilt. And the picture there is somebody sets a bar and says, you must jump this high and stay there and never fall. And no matter how hard you try and no matter how high you jump, you can never reach the bar, not even once, let alone stay there. That's guilt. And then there's the word translated as sin, which is the picture of an archer whiffing on the bullseye. And all of these different word pictures highlight the problem of our thorough imperfection. The problem of our sin that destroys our relationship with God, that causes the destruction that Micah was predicting for the kingdom of Judah, the destruction in our lives, and the destruction in creation. See, these verses are beautiful gospel. But there's also this confession in them. It's an implicit confession when Micah uses these word pictures. Who is a God like you who forgives guilt and who passes over the rebellion of the survivors of his inheritance? See, like a burden, everybody has to carry through their life the weight of their sin and its consequences. And we can trudge through a broken world for 70, 80, maybe 90 years under the burden of our sin. All the sadness, the frustration, the fatigue that it brings into our lives. And we can even delude ourselves into saying this is not because of sin. God, it's just part of life. And you've got to take the good with the bad, right? But what we cannot do is lift the burden of that sin. And if it's not lifted before you die, then you suffer the permanent punishment that sin deserves. Then you bear the burden for eternity. But who is a God like this one who steps in for his people and fights to lift the burden of that sin? The word forgive in these verses, the picture behind that is someone lifting a burden off of someone else and placing it onto themselves. And that's what God did for us when Jesus went to the cross. He lifted that burden of sin off of our shoulders and put it all on his son. The sin of the whole world Jesus suffered all the guilt, all the shame, all the punishment that sin deserved, and he stripped it of its power and its permanence. Micah says, he overcomes our guilty deeds, which literally means he tramples them under his feet until they turn into dust. He says, he will throw all their sins into the depths of the sea. Have you ever been out in deep water and chucked something overboard? Why do people do that? I think of the closing scene of that movie Titanic, spoiler alert, where the very elderly Rose finally drops that gaudy gem into the heart of the Atlantic Ocean. Why does she do that? Why do criminals go out to the middle of a lake and drop incriminating evidence? Because it's never coming back and nobody's ever going to see it. And that's what God does to the burden of our sin in the saving work of Jesus Christ. Who is a God like this one? The God who steps down and forward to fight for his people to lift the guilt of their sin, to trample it under his feet and throw it out into the deep water, never to come back. There's none other than the triune God. The Father who sends his Son in the power of the Holy Spirit. There is no other God like this one who bears the burden of our sin himself. There's no other Messiah who dies so that you can live.
There is no other Messiah who rises never to die again. And so it's totally fitting that these verses that start, who is a God like you, end this way. You will give truth to Jacob and mercy to Abraham as you swore to our fathers from days of old. God is the one who supplies the truth about himself. And when he does, it's more marvelous than anything we could ever imagine. Archaeologists have dug up some of these little idols that people made around Micah. And let me tell you something about these idols that people carved for themselves. They're not marvelous. They're remarkably unmarvelous. Some of them look like gremlins. They look more demonic than angelic. And think of some of the invented gods of the nations around Israel. Bullies. Monsters. They were gods who required people to cut themselves, self-harm. They had this like pay-for-play system of sacrifice, where if you happen to make the right sacrifice and catch this grumpy god in just the right mood, maybe he'll give you rain for your harvest. They required human sacrifice, even child sacrifice. When people make their own gods, they tend to make monsters. And that's still true today. I think of that college kid in Mary Ann's diner who started every sentence with, I think God this, I think God that. You know what? That God's a monster too. He's a little more subtle. He doesn't have his fangs out, but he's still a monster because he's not based on anything except human opinion. There's no certainty in that God that your sins are forgiven. There's no way to know if he loves you. There's no promise of life in heaven. That God doesn't give you anything but doubt and fear. He's still a monster. Now, the uniqueness, the total incomparability of the true God to anything we could imagine. Micah highlights two things about it in, this, in these verses. The first is his power that bears the burden of our sin. The second is his undeserved favor, his grace towards sinners. This is the God who actively searches sinners out and calls them to repentance and gives rejoicing to the angels in heaven when they do. This is the one God who gives forgiveness as a gift in the work of his son. Forgiveness in Christ is God's work. It's his plan. It's his decree. He drowned your sins in the deep waters of your baptism when you were baptized into the name of this triune God. He himself trampled your sins under his bloody feet on the cross. He is the God who freely loves and freely forgives for the sake of his son. No other God does that. No other God claims to. So now, what effect do you think Micah was hoping these closing three verses would have on the people of Judah? What do you think he was hoping the reaction would be of people who were carving out little idols for themselves? For them to hear and understand that what God is really like is beyond what they could ever imagine. And not only that, it's infinitely better than anything they could ever imagine. And they would willingly put away their little idols and worship the Lord and trust in Him. And that's what we need to remember whenever we are tempted to carve out our own little versions of God. To recognize that who the true God is is infinitely better than anything you can come up with and nothing you're going to come up with is ever going to compete and then put away any version of God who tells you your sin doesn't matter 
or it's your life and you should live it however you want to and you should be you no matter what or anything else that goes against what the true God says in his word and cling, stick with the God who bears the burden of your sin, tramples it under your feet and chucks it into the deep water. And one more thing. We all know people who are doing this. We all know people who are carving out of their own minds their own little personal God. And look, that is the natural consequence of a culture where the individual is exalted above all else. Once you do that, once the individual becomes the most important thing, objective truth dies away, and the personal opinion of that individual, that becomes their truth, their reality. I'm not saying that's good, but that's where we are. That's the world we live in. So then how do you approach that? What do you say to someone whose idea of God always starts with, I think, instead of God tells me in his word? Why not try something winsome, something that might actually work? Why not try something like this? What if God tells you who he is, and it's better than anything you could ever think of? Because it is. Amen.